Hi, Oleg. Um, is it pronounced perfectly? Yeah. Hi, Adam. Uh, yeah, Oleg is right. Perfect. Is... And um, now, the most important question always, what was your first computer? Oh, boy. It was a Pentium, right? I was, wasn't one of those kids who, um, who got their first experience with computers very, very early. It was a, uh, like, a, like a decent Pentium at the time. And we used it with my brother exclusively to play video games. Ah, uh, which Pentium? Pentium 1, 3? I think it was 1, right? Pentium 1, like a 100, 100 megahertz yeah. uh, frequency uh, with a button that made it like 60 megahertz as well, right? So it was a... This was the I think it was a turbo button, I think, right? Yes, it was a turbo button, but it only made it slower. So I think by default it was on. Mm -hmm. Right, or at least in our case, and that was very disappointing when we learned that this was a turbo button, and then we tried it, and it became slower. Okay, that was that was unfortunate. So it was uh, not one of the first, because as I remember, I think the Pentium started with sixty-six megahertz, and the one hundred thirty-three. I think I got one, and then later I got uh, the two hundred megahertz. It was K six from AMD, but. Uh, so you you were already so you had already a fast Pentium. So what was your favorite game then? Oh, that's a that's a that's an interesting question. I remember like I will just give you one that I remember. It was a motorcycle game where you just uh, run forward and then you kind of hit your neighbor riders with like sticks and ah. like chains and everything. I don't remember the name, but we played that for years. Not for years, like like hours at a time. Right, and and it was a it, it was a game that we got from a friend, mm -hmm. and we used those floppy disks to to carry the game from one computer to the other, and you had to do this because the floppy disks they don't hold a lot of information, right? It mm -hmm. was what one point four megabytes, so the process was fascinating actually at the time, mm -hmm. right? You you compressed the game with this uh, with this WinRAR utility. Mm -hmm. And it, it split that into packages mm -hmm. that you could grab on the, on the floppy disks. And then there were like a number of those. And you have to carefully carry them over okay. <laughs> using floppy disks, right? Yeah. And then we only had limited amount of those. So it, it took a few like trips back to the friend house. And then, and then you have to reassemble those. And then some of them were corrupt. And then it was the whole adventure just to game this game, to like copy this game from one computer to another. Yeah. I think it was back in like early 2000s, maybe? Yeah, maybe I think so. Like because um, I got my Pentium around 1996, 1997, what I remember. And the K6 came later. So I think it should be early 2000s. Yes, yes. And it was like, if now if I think back, right, that I wouldn't do anything like that now. Like I would just know, have no patience, right? My my attention span is like what two hundred eighty characters at the time, and um, we like I want I want my content be readily available for me, right? And and just thinking about how how much the technology progressed that is very fascinating. Thank you for this question. It's a it's a very pleasant memory. Yeah, um, you you wouldn't do this right now. So um. A few years ago, I uh, helped, you know, to develop something with Angular <laughs> web framework. And I would, I would prefer rather than splitting, you know, a software into floppy disks than doing this uh, again. It's like, you know, it downloaded 35,000 files over the network. And um, what I also spent some time, you know, with clouds. And if you uh, create a cloud 
from the beginning, it is a fiddling without end. I, I mean, it is like, you know, Jason Yamels, everything flies around. So I would say the technology progressed. We can probably achieved, achieve more now, but the fiddling remained the same, I would say, right? So it's not like uh, there's less fiddling. Uh, we, uh, it is uh, as, as plumbing as it always was, but uh, the output is better than it was years ago. Yes, but the fiddling, the fiddling shifted. And I think this is a very important distinction. Now, now fiddling is a part of the profession, yeah. right? So you ah, only, you only okay. deal with building the cloud when you are building a cloud, right? Yeah. Even like, so the end users who are consumers of your things do not do that, right? And even the end, the, the end user, like the, the developers who are the end users, they don't typically fiddle with the cloud like that, right? You go somewhere, you get a Kubernetes engine, some sorts, and, and then you just deploy your applications, or you can use other building blocks in the cloud, right? But if the fiddling is still there, right? The complexity is still there, but it is shifted towards very specialized people who are hopefully compensated very well for their fiddling. You are right. You are actually right. Uh, this is a very good point. But... Um... Recently, I also had to install Windows machine and um, I bought a license, uh, the official Microsoft license for Windows, I think it was professional or something. And uh, what I remember, what was really crazy, I had to input, you know, several passwords, then Outlook account, which I had to delete later, uh, but without, I think it was Outlook. And, uh, and then at the end, uh, even a PIN. So I was actually done with the password, then the Outlook, and then the PIN. And it was, for me, very annoying because, uh, I, I mean, I knew that it's completely, you know, pointless. So what I'm doing right now, I just, you know, cost my time. And at the end, the Windows worked. It works, but I mean, for me, it is like crazy, right? And then um, I got an, another laptop with Windows installed already. And this was a better experience, far better experience. But... Um, the problem was you no know, the uh, touch <laughs> touchpad to configure that took me also a while so i would say but it got significantly better yes um but um as i remember windows 95 what i got with the pentium i think it was easier there was one disk and it just run or, or didn't run but it was not like you know you had to input several uh, uh, what well, you only had to input i remember the license key and what I found out, if you divide it, it should be uh, the, um, if it divides by seven. So you could just put uh, no, just the seven number; it, it will still work. So, <laughs> but um, um, you are right. Uh, but what also shifted now? Linux is the opposite. <laughs> if you install Linux, it works out of the box. It it is amazing. So I, I had a, an old machine, my old server, and I just for fun, I installed I think Ubuntu. And this was like the opposite of my experience 20 years ago, where I didn't know uh, just to, 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 to enter the chipsets and whatever. It just worked out of the box. So, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. But the observation is really interesting that the, for the end users, the computer became just a device, right? Which they can just use usually. And for the programmers, we have st still to fiddle, and but we can achieve more. Oh, absolutely. And just the hardware resources, right? Thinking about this. You can casually get like a, a, a hard drive with a few terabytes. Yeah. Like it, it, that, that number didn't exist for me, at least in the early 2000s. Yeah. Right? I, I didn't operate like it, it was not. A, I, of course, I imagine that like if you add enough zeros to the right yeah. of the number, you get to those large numbers. But it was not like something real. 
and now this is like this is the thing that you can just you you go to i don't know amazon and you select a few and you ponder whether like extra 20 euros are worth like those two terabytes to four terabytes like upgrade yeah and this is this is mind-blowing but for us it's seven but for the end users it's pointless because if you think about this what the end users are doing they are taking you know hdr high quality images of something which is absolutely pointless and it takes a lot of space and and for us if if you if you stay away from multimedia just for coding whatever it's like one terabyte hard disk we cannot fill that right so back then i i, I had trouble you know to fill a linux distribution on my hard drive so i, I had to be thoughtful you know which distribution and now you can just install everything and there's still enough room uh, the problem is, of course, multimedia. So if you take videos, uh, this is what we didn't have before. So if you, uh, you know, store videos or pictures, music is not a problem. But the videos and pictures, that's, uh, and this this grows. Uh, I'm just, you know, if we get a, v, uh, AR or VR goggles or 3D, then it will still explode. So I think there is, the problem is now, you know, the multimedia stuff, which consumes lots of memory. But um, uh, to your splitting, uh, to your splitter, uh, I, I wrote a similar pro uh, program with Java. So actually, I zipped a huge file and split it to several disks. This was, uh, I wanted really to do that um, because I had a similar problem to yours, you know, to, to move uh, uh, databases, stuff like that. So um, when you stopped playing and did something different, so, uh, you know, batch or bash scripting or whatever. So what was, you know, the trigger to do that? Oh, yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't, to be honest, right? In the high school, I kind of, I was, I wasn't a nerd, nerd, right? Uh, in the proper definition of that, but I played chess, right? So I didn't hang out with cool kids oh. and I hang out with, with, with other kids who were helping the school administration with the website. And, and, How you and started to play chess? Like that. Just you, one, one, one day you just bought the game and started playing. So this is interesting. No, no, my grandpa, my grandpa, uh, he taught us and apparently he just recently kind of spilled the beans, uh, that he learned to play chess just to teach us himself. So a big shout out to, to him. Right. Uh, and he taught us and we were playing for quite a bit of time with him. And it's, it's very fascinating because at a certain point of time, like we started reading the books about chess, like, and we, I mean, me and my brother, he was, a, a, a two, two years older than me. Right. So we started reading books about chess and we started playing between ourselves because as kids, we had like lots of free time. And then we, then we improved, of course. And then we, at a certain point of time, we started beating the grandfather, uh, quite easily. Right. And it was, uh, it was kind of very natural. Right. And then we started beating him the way that we just like would glance at the board, like make a move and then think about something else. And he was actually trying to play. So we started getting a little bit better. And then they were actively asking us to join the chess club. And we were, at least I remember, I was very, uh, kind of, I was a little bit afraid because I thought that I was playing very badly, right? Because especially like chess is a cruel game, right? Like you can play well and then one mistake and like everything, yeah. everything kind of fails like a, like a house of cards. And then I kind of saw how badly I played. And then I was very reluctant to join the chess club because I thought like there are people play very well and they will absolutely beat me and this would be a terrible experience and I would hate it. So I didn't go there almost up until I was uh, like 11 and a half. And then we went there and there was, uh, we talked to the trainer and there was a tournament uh, for, for the kids of our age or something for the newbies and we absolutely crushed it. 
and we shared the first place there uh, because we actually played quite a bit of time and we, with experience, we just had a level. So, and then we continued playing. I think this initial success was a, a good motivator to continue playing. Uh, and it was, it was decent. Estonia is very small, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm from Estonia and Estonia is very small. So, uh, you know, for kids, they have those brackets of age in which people, in which kids compete, like under 10, under 12, 14, 16 years old, 18. And so for every age bracket, there weren't that many good people, right? And then, yeah, I, for several years, I kind of sort of competed, uh, competed with, 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 with my peers. And one, one time even like got to the European Youth Championship. That was an eye-opening experience because they're actually, well, there were good players in there, right? Because they were the best from the other countries. Uh, yeah. And there I performed rather poorly, but, uh, yeah, I think it was a, a very useful skill. Yeah. And, uh, I think it helped me a lot. It taught me several things and I think the most important ones. So is the ability to lose. Right, this training to lose because you you lose ton of games absolutely, and everyone is crushing because there is only you to blame. Mm -hmm. Right, there is no teammates, there is no weather conditions, there is no nothing. There is just you did something stupid and you lost. Right, and then when you do that again and again and again, you sort of get accustomed to this feeling of you being kind of silly and persevering through those challenges. And then I think that taught me quite a bit about. Uh, how to tackle problems. And I think it helped me in the, my developer career as well, right? Because it's very similar. You kind of you kind of navigate the code base and you do some changes and you have a, this grand plan of how the things should turn out. And of course, there is no opponent who is kind of like messing with your plans, but there is just the harsh reality of the complexity, yeah. right? And then, and then you do things and then sometimes you break the build and sometimes you like just hit the dead end and things don't work. And I think this, the skill transferred from chess was like, okay, yeah, let's, let's try it again, right? Let's learn from our mistakes and let's do it again and again and again. Uh, and that was without, without, you know, feeling, uh, kind of bad for, for you not performing because sometimes like when you tackle a hard problem and it's, I know it's very demotivating and I know very many people in the community kind of voiced this concern of the imposter syndrome. Right, like you look at social media, you look at your peers, and well, obviously everyone tries to like put their best foot forward online, mm -hmm. right? And you mostly see those the highlights of the lives of your peers and and colleagues and everyone, mm -hmm. right? So so you think that oh my god, they're the amazing specialists, and of course they are, but you just for yourself you see those lows as well, mm -hmm. and given how life is, you mostly observe the lows. Mm -hmm. For your life, <laughs> which is good, because but, they uh, stick in memory more. In as which well. which city was it in Estonia? Uh, so I lived in Tallinn, Tallinn uh, which okay. is the capital. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a it's a rather small city, like less than half a million people, mm -hmm. uh, and it's it's it is much much better now. So if mm -hmm. you have a, if you haven't visited recently no. and you have a chance, I would absolutely recommend that. Uh, typically, not during the winter, mm -hmm. or maybe winter Christmas break is good as well. But mm -hmm. the summer months are more pleasant. And had, then I, uh, I think we had the same grandpa. Uh, uh, the only difference was I never, uh, I never was able to beat him. So uh, and uh, and sometimes he left me win, which made me angry. But I try you know, to win. There was no no chance to win chess. And then he said, told me um, that you can play in in chess club. And 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 for me it was like uh, 
Not that they were smart, because the, the entire I was not I was afraid of the consequences. I thought, okay, if I go to the chess club, I, I will have to spend you know uh, several hours just training. And uh, what also uh, I think there was I observed what they are doing. What, you know, they were like opening scenes from from famous players or whatever. And and I thought you know um, what I thought is I'm just playing for fun, and they already see what happens. You know what I mean? So if I play yeah. chase, uh, chess, I enjoyed the, the, the game and I just played and, and it worked well. But my suspicion was that the others are able to analyze everything, which uh, which I didn't. I just played. And um, and maybe this is true or not. So um, what's now I'm curious because I'm also a chess player. So um, you play by intuition or you were... A, I, of course, I knew that what the other will do if there's a stupid situation. But uh, was it like a strategy or you just played? chess oh no so initially of course we just played right yeah. and then and then and then i think the next skill that you develop you start calculating mm-hmm. a little bit so you kind of sort of do how like if you imagine like how you would program a chess engine right you sort of do the same but very slowly so you th- sit there and you think okay i will go here and they will go here yeah, and of course. i will do this and then i will do that uh so this is one thing but like of course this doesn't scale because your but human how, brain how is many moves in advance were you able to see this oh this is a like uh, this is a very different question right because you never you never never actually calculate the full tree yeah right because it's just impossible yeah so you calculate sort of the principled variations mm-hmm. so in every position you look at that and you you determine a couple of candidate moves yeah right and before even you start calculating, you kind of sort of assess the position, yeah, which is very important. And I think this is a very like a more advanced skill. You you kind of sort of try to see where there are the weaknesses and where the pieces that could hang, and then so you assess where your strengths are and in general what you want to achieve, right? Like yeah. you, for example, you were like, I want to place this knight on this outpost where it will be an excellent piece, yeah, right. And then you start you start thinking about candidate moves. Which is which is the moves that you're gonna sort of calculate deeper, and those start with forcing moves like checks, uh, captures, or attacks or threats, and then sort of non-threatening moves like which are just positional moves or something that is uh, like sneaky, right? And the forcing moves are easy to calculate because forcing moves re- probably uh, mean forcing re- responses as well, mm-hmm. right? So you you tree you prune the tree very very efficiently. Mm-hmm. So you can calculate several moves, like ten moves ahead or anything mm-hmm. like this, right? And 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 then you sort of at a certain point of time you stop this calculation, either when you think that you kind of can assess the resulting position well, so you see like okay you got to the checkmate very good, mm-hmm. or you got to the position with extra materials very good, mm-hmm. or you kind of have a feeling that that would be a winning position for you, and then you stop calculating, mm-hmm. and then you kind of sort of calculate other variations from there, and then you pick whichever results in the best position that you found right so in the with forcing moves is easy so uh, i think the sneaky this this the this, this, the the uh, sneaky part i think this is what i learned other tricks i had some openings and you know, it's like i knew okay this is unusual if i do this and the other uh my my, my opponent uh doesn't recognize what, what i would do it will lose in there, there are some tricks which you could apply in every situation and uh, i try you know to see how smart is the other guy and uh, in case uh, it could work or not, and um, and uh, this is what okay. And the forcing moves, I didn't knew that there are such terms. I just uh, and the forcing moves are obvious because if I know, say, uh, I don't know, uh, 
if I do something uh, which um, which will uh, how to call it I, I don't even know how to figure so uh, uh, called in in English but um if you if you, I will uh, treat you then uh, you will do something because it is like yeah. it is right so this is easy and the sneaky moves is like okay it it um if I do this for a longer period of time and you don't recognize what I'm actually doing then I will uh, gain some uh, some advance because I can position down my strategic figures on cert certain places okay so this is what I also did and I enjoyed it a lot but I didn't knew the terms you know they're like a forcing moves and sneaky moves so I just did it and oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah sneaky move is not a term but yeah but like that's that's how you play yeah and from there you like develop uh, like intuition and it's sort of like the same with code as well right yeah sometimes you look at a piece of code and you see that okay this resembles decent code right yeah. or you see that something is incorrect and like like what you, what we call code smells yeah right like sometimes it's an obvious something like just plain incorrect or something that is an issue waiting to happen yeah. right but but sometimes but sometimes you just like have a feeling that the, the code looks a little bit different from what you've seen before and you are like a little bit suspicious of that yeah so kind of like that but with with the with the game of chess very good so um, i also enjoyed uh, chess a lot and uh, i also uh i would say i was not very uh, successful among my peers i was but uh the next problem was my a physics teacher it was a woman but she was even more incredible i had no idea i think she was also she she won probably some some championships um as i remember and uh yeah it was impossible to win but i tried you know hard because uh but impossible so okay cool so um chess this was the, your entry right. into programming yeah or... yeah and i, I hanged out hanged out with the kids and they, they did some work on the school website and i did a little bit of html and then some basic uh they did some like the website on the php backend right a little bit of with that with them right but not professionally or anything so i just look at the code and fiddled with it and like you know like uh, edited the files on the F ftp or something and then properly started programming what you could call a programming only in the university to be honest okay Right, and and uh, Java was my first language. Huh. Uh, but uh, if you saw and, the PHP, uh, what, was it fun for you? So you wanted to do this, or it's just for you? Was no, boring? I just I kind of that was the peer pressure. Okay. Right, I hang out with those guys, and like it was it went kind of nice, and they did some things there, and then I was like, oh, maybe I could be useful as well, and then we just, okay. But you said uh, you 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 were not one of the cool kids because you played chess, but the others was very cool kids because not. they did PHP. No, no, they were. Uh, Even worse. <laughs> I didn't hang out with cool kids, right? But I hang out with uh, with with the other group of kids who were uh, like sort of closer to the administration because they were helping with various like okay. IT utilities in school, right? And uh, why you why why you like them? Because I mean, because you know, well, if no, you just just friends. Somehow. Oh, okay. And yeah, in general, I wasn't, and even now, I'm like a very easily abused person. But right, you can, you can easily nerd snipe me or, or just entertain me by showing something, something simple and like, and, 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 and I would be like, oh, very cool. Right. And then I would try to hang out with you because you are uh, an interesting person. Okay. So, and that was that. And, but then, yeah, but then, then of course the university changed everything. Why you started to do, why you started to study computer science? That is interesting. I don't know. Really don't know because, uh, I sort of, I had good grades in school, so I could sort of pick, uh, in Estonia, we had the system where your grades and your like school examination results determine like where you can apply. 
How good were you? I don't need food. Great. Uh, I was decent. <laughs> so uh, how, how much you learned for that? Uh, how much what, sorry? How much you learned, you know, at, at, at home for you? At school? Yeah. 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 Like, well, all my time, to be honest. Ah, I okay. Because, because I'm always interested. If, some, if someone has, you know, very good grades, I'm always interested how much work is behind. So this is... Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. 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 I think so. At the time, it didn't seem like I did a lot. Okay. Right. I wasn't, I wasn't very consistent with homeworks and I wasn't... Uh, I wasn't the, the best behavior student, right? So I, like, I, I, I copied the solutions from others, okay. right? And then, and then kind of like I did it in a smart way when I would understand their solution and just rewrite that. And, but like, I, I did put a lot of work and now looking back, I did put like a lot of work. So I probably could have done that with less time investment. Why you did I it? Was, like, I don't know. It was just that, that, that's what I did. Okay. Right. I, I just, I, I didn't have any questions about that. Okay. Right. So I wasn't, I wasn't, I was maybe you could call me smart, but I wasn't wise. Okay. Right. So, and now, now when I look at people and they, and, and when I see them do like really smart things, right. I'm always, I always marvel at, at their like capacity for understanding life. Like for example, people do internships. Right, and the students do internships, mm -hmm. and for me, at, in the school or even the, in the early university years, right, that was never an idea that I entertained. I don't know why, but like that just wasn't in my picture. And like you could, like an internship is a very good opportunity to to join a team of like uh, really the cutting edge re research somewhere doing mm -hmm. I don't know at a large company, mm -hmm. right? and then probably if you do well there, you will you will end up working for that company. Mm -hmm. So we see, for example, that quite a bit of that was Oracle, mm -hmm. uh, Oracle Labs mm -hmm. team uh, and the interns that are joining, right? And now I see that is absolutely possible, right? And the teams are well, well like we are welcoming. So I assume like 10 years ago when I was a student, though, then people were also, the teams were welcoming and, and nice. Mm -hmm. And that was such a great idea at mm -hmm. the time. Like, and I would absolutely enjoy that. And probably that would change my life in considerable ways to the better. Yeah. But I never thought that this is a possibility, and I just, I just didn't, didn't bother. Yeah, but but this is different. You know, this is not smartness because uh, sometimes someone have to help you or at least show you, you know the opportunities. If you, yeah. if it is yeah, not yeah. even on your horizon, then uh, it is. And you no, know, there are lots of things which you don't think about, which are actually great ideas. And if someone will just point you lightly to the direction, it will change everything, right? So this is this is yeah. this is yeah, not like smartness. I don't know how to call it. It's just sometimes you don't see the opportunity. And and you you think yeah, you know I, hard work is uh, is good so you are working a lot but there is no output and sometimes okay I work less and do this and there will be more more output you know productivity or efficiency yeah. or whatever you well, you you are not no, efficient no, maybe right Batman no 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 I wouldn't call myself not efficient right because I did things like so I call it being wise mm -hmm. like you know like yeah. the the wisdom stat uh, the wisdom stat. Right, but uh, because you need to understand how life works, yeah. Right, and you need to understand a little bit how, like, the point of the university is like half of the point of the university to establish the network, for example. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I didn't know that. Like, nobody told me that. Well, I mean, people were probably saying that, but I maybe wasn't there or wasn't listening. Yeah. <laughs> right. Maybe I was doing some homework or something. Right. So, but yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I think I if I would. If I w would go like 15 years back now, right, and I would be like 16 again, I would do things very differently. <laughs> and, and I was also studied differently. Right? Okay. Yeah, but I have a job now, and I think it's a, it's a very, very interesting project, and it's a, it's a great place in life to be. Perfect. So um, you started computer science. 
because because you could you had a decent grades and uh so you liked that or not so what what's your you know the, the first year at the university at the university oh the first year was interesting uh because well in estonia the higher education uh at, now it maybe it's, there is a little bit more freedom maybe it was more freedom than back then but the default path was that some courses were in estonian mm -hmm. right which are which are uh like the kind of more general courses mm -hmm. right and the for the for the computer science uh that was physics and some uh calculus mm -hmm. uh and and something else like that like how to do measurements and with like the like actual physical measurements and whatnot and some hardware it was very interesting to study in Estonia because my first language is russian so mm -hmm. in school i was uh, learning a russian and and then studying in estonian was very very They're different uh, how different, different are the languages estonian and, and, and russian oh the worlds apart Okay. So Russian is a Slavic language, mm -hmm. and Estonian is this uh, from a different group of languages. Mm -hmm. uh, and Estonian is like similar to Finnish, and oh. apparently Hungarian. Okay. So those those three are from the same group. And if you know Finnish or Hungarian, or you've heard them, they're very different from, for example, yeah, other languages that is one that people speak yeah. in the region. Okay, Finnish, I can imagine. But um, if you grew up in Tallinn, which is uh, the uh, uh, capital of Estonia, and you couldn't speak Estonian. Why that? Because uh, the Russian forced you to speak Russian, right? For a long time. And then the university somehow uh, changed their mind and say, okay, now we are Estonian and we should speak Estonian. This is like a short, a long story short like this. Well, the long story short, that was the Soviet Union until the 1991. Yeah. And I was born in 87. Ah, okay. So when that collapse happened, I was like four years old. And then for the few years forward, of course, the system was still very much based on Russian language as well, right? So because of the inertia. But of course, after gaining independence, Estonia, and uh, we wanted to kind of preserve the, the culture mm -hmm. and uh, the independence, and that starts with the language as well. Mm -hmm. So more and more things, I don't know how it was before. So like, I'm not an authority on that. This is my no, version. No, to, just more more started, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, more and more things uh, started to kind of move towards being Estonian first. Mm -hmm. Maybe they moved immediately, but yeah, I just didn't experience that, right? And then, uh, yeah, the higher education was in Estonia. Uh, yeah, okay. What is for for you is a mission impossible. I mean, between Russian and Hungarian, I would say they are worlds apart. So it was impossible to get anything. No, no, but like, I, yeah, yeah. But I learned Estonian in school, and that was ah, like, okay. we had a little a bit. Okay. Of lessons, bit. Okay. of course. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. I like by the ninth grade, I could speak in normal like life situations okay. uh, like i would go to the library or a doctor or i don't know like ask the directions and like normal conversations for mm -hmm. i don't know ninth grade is what 15 years old like for for the the things and by the end of the 12th grade like it was supposed to be you supposed to be at least a, an intermediate level okay and the intermediate level in languages which is also very fascinating like uh it is your you know enough to communicate mm -hmm. and you know enough to actually consume any information mm -hmm. It's just sometimes you have to, you have to translate that into this. <laughs> like if you imagine your your proficiency in languages go from goes from basic concepts to being able to express yourself freely, but in very simple terms. You kind of sort of you get the bytecode of the language, yeah. right? And then and then you kind of like you explain things. So I'm doing this and that, mm -hmm. and I'm going there, and uh, I I do that, and I want to achieve something. And then you add color and proficiency and fluency and vocabulary on top of that to kind of communicate efficiently and nicely. 
So by the end of the school, I could. And, and my observation is, after that, come the next phase, we are removing the stuff and try to yeah. communicate more efficiently, you know? So this is like what the great yeah. writers are doing. They are able, you know, to, to write in short sentences or speak very clearly. I would say this is the last level, right? If you are able to express yeah, yourself in, in, uh, in, in, uh, in short terms. So this is... Like, imagine you start with some basic concepts like uh, conditional blocks and loops and everything, and then you sort of learn Java. Mm-hmm. And then you sort of learn Scala and then you can do whatever and you're a magician, right? And then you kind of sort of move back towards maybe, maybe Kotlin, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a, a little bit uh, more expressive than Java, mm-hmm. but also not as complex and, and, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, a funny story with Scala is, um, I, um, so I did Java and then, I know there was Scala everywhere and everyone said, okay, uh, uh, you have to also to to do Scala, and and my strategy back then was uh, to wait until Java will be not enough for my purposes, and then learn Java, Scala. But in, in advance, I started to learn Scala, and I used the Scala test. So this is like a JUnit, right? So and um, it worked so okay. So the compilation was a uh, uh, very painfully slow, but it's okay. Who cares? I mean, let's see. And then I took a look. I clicked at the at some of the asserts at the Scala code, and I was absolutely not able what's going on. So I mean, what's going on? This is, I cannot understand what's going on. And then I ask someone, it's like, yeah, you don't understand this because you are just application developer. And the Scala, uh, how to call library developers, they write the libraries and application developers have to uh, consume the libraries. So okay, this is really true, yeah. So okay, then I, <laughs> I deleted immediately the entire Scala test so they will never fly and back to Java from then. So since then, I never use Scala again. And I would say it was the right decision. I, I was lucky, but uh, yeah. This was like, uh, yeah. But um, at your university, so you learned Java. You started to learn Java. You enjoyed that immediately or not? Or what's what's the story with you and Java? So I, I think I like Java quite a bit, right? So because that was, so my first year at the university was 2005, mm-hmm. right? And then, and then we started Java with some simple, very simple Java things uh, and the programs and just the basic the structures and everything. I never... I never felt the verbosity of that or any of the problems like that. Right. So it was, it was very natural. And maybe because like I, maybe because I saw some like PHP before, or maybe because it resembled very much how, how chess works, right? Like the, the conditionals and chaining the conditionals and then doing like loops, all those kind of felt very natural to me. And also like, I think one thing it's very fascinating to me is since my first language is Russian, mm-hmm. like all the code looks to me as code, right? I don't, I don't feel that as normal, like words. Yeah. So if for me, an if block, right? It's not, it's not the, the if that I'm saying when I'm talking in English, right? Mm-hmm. That is a, like th- th- that particular if in code is a, is a token that has a special yeah. meaning, right? Like, and for someone, for someone with, with the first language being English, Probably, I think, I imagine that would be different because that would be like a natural if for them, like Mm -hmm. as a part of the English. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I I learned it just as a code system and then I I didn't see anything wrong with that. And I think the first course we did some basic language things and one of the final things was to like paint, to paint uh, like a snowman using the AWT and some paint. And then, Mm -hmm. uh, and you think about... You think about that this is like sort of a silly task, which it is, but it also kind of 
ties together. You need to have some functions probably, right? And then you have to create some some helper methods to draw like circles and everything, and then they like abstract away the use of graphics and uh, and some conditionals and this and that. And that was that was interesting. Uh, and then the second course was this the second half a year was the object oriented programming what is it in leisure so after university you still hacked java or did something completely different to be honest i don't remember i read some books you're not that old come on you don't want like to tell then you you know you were no 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 it's it's just not like that i i didn't do anything bad right i didn't do (laughs) this what i suspected you know i didn't (laughs) yeah yeah i didn't i didn't do anything anything that is like kind of not worth remembering I hang out with my peers and I, 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 I found a group of friends and we did some juggling uh, and I still played some chess, though, though very leisurely without actually training. Mm-hmm. Right? And uh, so somehow, somehow I never, uh, I did some programming uh, at like free time, but nothing substantial. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly, I don't have any cool projects to show okay. uh, for that time. This surprises uh, me because if you like at a university, I would suspect you now with your ch- chess background, you you would hack them you know, all the time or create a chess game or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, and many people did. Surprisingly, the yeah. internet is full of various chess engines and chess websites and everything. Uh, but unfortunately, I cannot claim any authorship for that. Uh, maybe, maybe because maybe because studying was actually not easy, right? Yeah. Like like especially first few years, like the courses in Estonian were consuming some time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't it wasn't as straightforward. And also, yeah, like maybe living in a separate city, so like the life life came onto me, right? And then uh, it's uh, yeah, I cannot, I don't have, I don't have anything to show for those years. And were your grades still decent? Yeah, yeah, they were okay. They were okay. Uh, somewhere first two years definitely. And then at some point in time, I joined the the company and I started working. And and then the grades, so obviously they like fell. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite considerably like for example and it was like it was very interesting because i was working and then i was studying right and then when you do both and for one of those you get paid mm-hmm. and for the other you don't right the other never wins a competition for your time yeah which is which is which is also a lesson that i kind of learned there mm-hmm. uh i think it's like it's obvious when you think about that but as i said like i was not wise so i wasn't thinking so i had to experience that to kind of to learn from that and so it never it never won which is kind of the same way if you think about that if you're currently holding a full-time job or like a job where you actually get paid money and for example you do some open source at the side uh it's very rarely that when there are like deadlines or anything that your hobby work will will win the battle for your time uh, yes so with that 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 happened because obviously the incentives are uh where your your compensation is Right, so uh, unless you are like really well funded, and then you don't care for your job, right? But then the grades kind of were falling. Uh, but the, uh, so that was one aspect. But the other aspect was interesting because we still had the courses for where you had to like program some things, mm-hmm. right? For example, the the we did some some a course in distributed computing and everything. And the the other aspect, how the work influenced my my academia studies, was that. I couldn't, you know how like you often we think that uh, the code from academia is uh, kind of not very like real world life mm-hmm. because people there just want to make the thing work and then it works and it's kind of like in that shape, mm-hmm. right? 
And at work, you know that you have to maintain that code. So you kind of wrap it into the test suite and you provide, try to provide the documentation for that. And then you have to, like you try to clean up the API and make it like consumable and everything. So you kind of, you do a lot of like code related activities besides making the code work. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how I like, and when you start doing that, it's very hard to actually not do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in the, for the, for the courses and the, and the, uh, for my university, I started doing the, the, all the coding assignments kind of were in the same, in this, with the same code quality, right? I tried to like produce some tests and here and there, and then, and it was very hard because, <laughs> because lots of them weren't like dedicated for that. And there was no time to like learn. Yeah learn the the things so we had the course in haskell for example right and then uh what i know it's a beautiful language and but to me the the that one course just ruined the experience because i had to uh yeah i didn't understand it well enough and then i just threw things at the compiler until it stopped complaining and then when it compiled like in haskell if it compiles it works right so that was the extent of it yeah, but for the for the courses where I understood sort of what I was doing, I was trying to to build like software for that. Like, a, I had a different problem. problem. So during I also worked during uh, my study, and what I recognize is that uh, some some things which are get taught at the university they are just not right. So they they this is uh, they're actually pointless, and this was my motivation problem sometimes. And I was like, okay, I have to learn something which is absolutely pointless. I know it right now. And I just did it because I wanted. But uh, this was uh, this is a little bit more dangerous than anything else. Um, you started with Java in two thousand five, so I think with Java five, right? So you you started right away with annotations. Yeah, and generics. And generics, so crazy. I never I never experienced Java without generics. One of the spoiled ones. Yeah, and right. uh, without annotations, even more interesting because without annotations, you, you you would have to write you know lots of XML code. So and uh, annotations killed that. So this is um, yes, but surprisingly, it didn't happen overnight. Well, not surprisingly, but it didn't happen overnight. So, like for example, in at the university, we didn't. I don't think we studied or we learned about annotations, or we kind of saw the the potential in those. And even like I remember it, my first. Uh, web applications, spring applications with some Tomcat. It was all configured using XML. The interesting part with Spring is that uh, the uh, what I remember is back then in Spring, there was in the official Spring uh, documentation that the annotations uh, are not meant for production. So the, the XML is the way you know for production. This was a very long in the Spring documentation because many developers point me to that. And for me, it was completely different because uh, I I uh, worked with uh, Java EE and J2E, and um, you had to write the XML code. And in one point of time, after one year, no one wrote that. It was generated by a tool called XDoclet. So you wrote like Java doc comments, and they looked very similar to annotations. It was like at EJB dot uh, EJB name, what I remember, for instance, or EG, and 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 I think um, I had already conversations with uh, different. Um, uh, developers um, at Sun back then and Oracle that this was like you know the idea also that you could do something like this with Java, and then Xdoclet was more or less pointless and all the annotations became as or all the doclets um, it's called the proper name is doclets became annotations. So for me, as it came out, I deleted immediately all the XML everything and I used to know the annotations from day one because uh, I got better code completion. The problem with the Java doc part 
uh, I had to use specific Eclipse tool and control space didn't work very well. It worked most of the times, but not very good. But in annotations, it was just beautiful because it didn't compile. So, and with that, I was able you know, to, to delete a lot of, you know, plumbing, XML configuration and, 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 and you said Spring, I look at the Springs, like they are all crazy. Why they enjoy XML? So for me, it was not understandable back then. And, and then they killed the XML and then it became very similar. So my world in Java E and J2E and then the XML. I think it's just the mo like the question of inertia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and exactly. Like if you think, and, and I, it's, it's very important to maintain that. And this is, this was like for as much as I can remember the, one of the core strengths of Java, mm -hmm. uh, the language and the platform and, and most of the successful projects in the Java ecosystem mm -hmm. also, also kind of recognize that and, and uh, and recognize their own weight in the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So for example, currently like a conservative, like in, if we estimate spring, spring framework and like spring boot and, uh, those technologies will, will take a very large chunk, like more than half, maybe like closer to like three quarters or 80% of the like web applications written mm -hmm. in, in, in Java. Mm -hmm. Right. And then for example, you, you, you cannot, I don't think you cannot or should uh impose any decisions like that oh let's stop using xml and then let's start using annotations right away you just uh you, you just cannot because yeah. the you have the mass and that mass of people and code and projects move forward and you can only kind of herd that into into the path that you think is good for yeah. the future so yeah, I think even back then as well, it was quite the case. So so maybe thinking, I don't know, like I, I don't particularly remember that Spring said that annotations are not for, uh, are not good for production. No, what I remember, it was like there was auto-wired specific, specifically, and there were uh, talks uh, where they said, okay, annotations are back then can be slow back then, and uh, XML was faster. And uh, I couldn't, I, I forgot actually. And for me, it was so, okay, whether it is faster or not, I will use annotations because it's more maintainable. I don't care. Yeah. And, I, and I just measured that and it was uh, good enough. And I said, okay, now whether this is 100 milliseconds faster or not, you know, the deployment time, I don't care yeah. at all. I will use it done. And I delete uh, from then. I never wrote XML again. But um, at the university, you did some distributed com programming in Java and then you start working. Why you started to work? Just for fun? Because you said, you know, you, 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 uh, you didn't saw the opportunity to, to, be, uh, to be an intern in a company, but you start working, so it's even better. Yeah, yeah, but like I started working for like a local company, right? And we just did like web development of, okay. uh, of applications with in Java? Java and everything. And with Java? Yeah, yeah, it was Java. It was Java. It was Java. It was uh, 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 the normal uh, tech stack. At the times, so it was Spring the same or, or Java? What what do you use back then? It was it was Spring, and it was uh, it was also the uh, the UI framework called Arania. Okay. Uh, uh, and so this was the company where uh, never heard about the framework. The, what, 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 what is it? Huh? Yeah, yeah. It was it was sort of an in house, but it ah, was okay. open source, but in house. Right. So this is the company from which the guys who created the zero turnaround uh, uh, initially came off. Right. Ah. So J Rebel was developed in there. So uh, Evgeny Kabanov and Thomas Romer and the guys were working there. Uh, and it, it is still the company still exists and thrives currently as well. Uh, I think they changed the names, mm -hmm. but they, they it was a great company back then, and it's a it's a good company back now. Right. And we just so they you had applied. Some tools you applied for the job. 
Yeah, yeah. I applied for a job. Someone recommended me. I did the I did the uh, the test task, mm -hmm. which was uh, I think it was a, like a, implementing a chat application on on mm -hmm. on Tomcat. Mm -hmm. uh, so a simple chat application, and it was of course the UI was horrendous, but yep. the, the the main thing was that it worked. Uh, I think it mostly assessed that I could read through the docs and kind of glue together mm -hmm. enough pieces of like servlets and 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 components uh to to make a working program and then and then yeah i worked there and it was uh it was eye-opening how oh, because even back then they had some new code and it was very interesting they had also the old components and my first job it was uh in the in the team that was doing the uh the project for the uh the hospital for the clinics mm -hmm. and of course they had like some uh other systems in place already for i don't know radiology and whatnot mm -hmm. and it was quite a bit of messaging and jms and then and then everything went into the database and then you had to like <laughs> the communication with messages right like uh, the errors would accumulate overnight and then you would go and resolve conflicts and figure out how like how to tie uh like things together and make the like, data that is available in the system you kind of had to massage that into the way not not the actual like diagnosis or anything like that but the, the shape of data like mm -hmm. connecting documents with with people uh in a way that the system would correctly process that and uh, so you had to spend some time with hl7 i think this is like a xml format right in the hospital yes yeah yes yes hl7 it's it's not xml it's a like a text-based Mm -hmm. format with with post delimiting the information yeah and then you send those messages back and forth and they have the different shape and we yeah we we used we used that and then we used some xslt transformations for massaging that to the messages that went to the database and that was also actually that was a very fascinating project because it immediately taught me about how the abstraction inside our machines in the inside the computer are very different from the real world Mm -hmm. Like, for example, if you think about the medical system, there are patients, mm -hmm. right? And a patient is a person. So they would have name, they would have the identity code and other things. And that is just normal because you and I, we have names, right? Mm -hmm. It's, 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 you are, you cannot, like, very rarely you think about a person not having name or any identifiable information. Mm -hmm. But for the health system, that happens left and right. Mm -hmm. right? Like people, like teams pick up somebody unconscious somewhere or or I don't know, like just random and there is a name and there is a person and they need to take care of that person and then they cannot even talk to that. So sure. there would be like a like a like a row in the database without without names, right? Mm -hmm. And then you had to design your system in a way that processes those in process that incomplete data normally. Mm -hmm. Which was very interesting. So you yeah, that was that was very pragmatic, cool. I, right? So I, pragmatic I, I is learned, yeah. I think I learned very, very much uh in that project and that system when you left the company I, I i joined a different company like sort of across the street called playtech okay. and they were doing the online gaming system wow. online gaming in java um, and yeah yeah in java so that was the casinos and like slots machines and everything like that mm -hmm. uh and it was interesting and it was a little bit different because there most of the primitives in the server and the communication was obviously in-house developed in-house and uh, that was uh, without frameworks, so yeah, we, we uh, there the code did like dependency injection by hand, like and you like you, you sort of how people nowadays say like, oh, why do you need dependency injection? Just create objects with new and pass it into the constructors, mm -hmm. right? So 
that's what kind of the style of code there. And it was a little bit low level and there were more questions about or, or procedure about the concurrency. Mm -hmm. So there were different threads and, 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 and the, the components were separated, right? So you had a client, but you also kind of sort of had the sort of the microservice C we didn't, didn't call it that, of course, but there was a microservice infra, infrastructure where different components on the back end would, would kind of uh, uh, res be responsible for particular tasks or something. When, when was it? And it was... Which year? Uh, 2000, 2008, seven, eight. It's interesting because exactly at the same time, I was in a company uh, which did exactly the same, and they were Python developers, and I convinced them to use Java, and we used Glassfish V3 back then. For, for the task. Mm -hmm. So dependency injection, everything out of the box, and it works until now. And uh, really interesting that you spend the same time in, in uh, with very similar companies. And we also did casinos, blackjack, what I remember. I um, while he had, I have no idea about casinos. So And uh, I remember how many variants blackjack actually had. And they were like, uh, yeah. it was crazy how, and the you know, product management uh, told us, you know, you did this variants. And then we started to introduce fit. Um, Fitness, fit test, fitness, you know, because uh, we wanted that they write the rules which get automatically validated. So, um, interesting. <laughs> so we have almost you no, know, we 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 are living in parallel universe. So we did uh, uh, certain things exactly at the same time, which is interesting. Yeah. Oh, and what was, was the front end in the company? Uh, the casino. In my case, it was yeah, Adobe yeah, Flex. Back then. I, yeah, I think we had some the, the we had some sort of a web front end like that. Mm -hmm. I think it was yeah. Uh, I think maybe maybe it was a flash. Yeah. Maybe maybe flex or something. Like yeah, this. flash and flex. Right. We, also had, mm -hmm. we had we also had the native clients, right? So it was the the for example the Windows clients, oh, okay. Windows client, and it was written in C plus plus, and it was just a native application. And yeah, it was it was very interesting. Like I learned a lot about casinos, and I learned about slots, uh, and and then it was one one memory from there I had when I had to implement a game, like the logic for the back end of the game, right? Mm -hmm. And then, and then I didn't have my, my input was kind of sort of a description of, of how it works in, in a spreadsheet and, and uh, the payouts for mm -hmm. certain combinations and everything. Mm -hmm. And of course, so how we did, of course, like for, for all, all of that is strictly reg regulated, mm -hmm. right? So there are tests that like would play this game for like a long, long, long period of time. And then the payout had to be like a certain number, like, mm -hmm. like for example, like 98%, right? Mm -hmm. Because, well, the casino cannot rob, cannot like rob its users, right? So it had to be, it had to be fair. Uh, and then, and then I submitted that and then, <laughs> and then it didn't match. Uh, it didn't match with expected math. And of course, like you cannot debug that because uh, it doesn't tell you where the issue is. Mm -hmm. Like it just tells you that in the long run, like the payout wasn't what is supposed to be according to the math and the expectations mm -hmm. of the randoms. Uh, and I had to debug that, and I I couldn't because the, my input was like the, just a spreadsheet, and like my tests were directly converted from that spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. And then, and then the guys told me, okay, like, yeah, go on this other floor in this building there. And there, there's a physical slot machine and just go and play your version and play, well, like play the machine and use your version to kind of like pass the inputs from the machine and see where the outputs fail, like whether, where the outputs will, will be different. And I, yeah, I spent the day like doing literally that, playing the slots machine and inputting my things, found one bug. Mm -hmm. And I fixed that one bug of the payout. There was uh, some condition that wasn't properly 
properly specified or something. And then, yeah, and then we rerun the tests. Yeah, yeah, I, I played the game. I played the game diligently and we fixed it, right? And then luckily that was the only issue with that, right? And then the payouts were correct. And then uh, the rest of the tests were kind of correct as well. And then, yeah, we shipped it. I don't remember the name of the game or anything like that, but it was it was it was very interesting because I had to develop something that mimics the real world thing. Mm -hmm. That was very cool. And and then what happened then? Then you stopped to work at Playtech. Yes, and I joined Zero Turnaround. Huh. Uh, which is the, the, the which real is the zero company. zero turnaround or or the, the yes yeah uh -huh. yeah yeah the real the real zero turnaround. Yeah, the company that developed uh, JRebel and the LiveRebel at the time, and then XRebel afterwards, and those those kind of JVM tools, uh, Java tools for the Java ecosystem that kind of were very interesting. And it was one like if you think about that, from web applications to to kind of writing your software by hand, like in the, with in-house frameworks uh, and with just pure Java, right? You that was a step further down down the stack right? because the jrebel and other tools were java agents mm -hmm. which are one one level deeper so what was your, what was i mean you joined them you, you knew what to expect right or 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 no oh no absolutely not not okay <laughs> because i mean it's no. crazy so uh, okay so what was your first day at zero turnaround <laughs> Crying. Well, I, if you I if you saw the them. Java agents, you, st you started to cry. Maybe it's like, okay, I will never understand what's going on, right? No, no. It was actually like so. I joined the LiveRebel team, which okay. and LiveRebel like so. JRebel is a flagship. Was the flagship project and uh, product, which was the of course the the tool that allows you to kind of reload classes within the running JVM process, mm -hmm. right? And then LiveRebel was this uh, kind of step forward from that. Uh, into creating this and applying the same logic towards applications running in production, mm -hmm. right? So, so it would it would also use like you would instrument your application with the Java agent, and then it would uh, receive the whole new version of the application, right? Mm -hmm. And then it would either swap like like the classes, uh, and then by that time we figured out that just swapping classes is never enough. Mm -hmm. Right, and then it would, uh, it's it was split into two versions, like sort of an agent and kind of watchdog for that, that would kind of demonize itself, and then it would be able to restart your application, uh, like like stop the existing application and start the new version, right? And it all communicated back to, it all communicated back to the central, uh, uh, central web application, the console, right? And then you could you can kind of monitor your fleets. Uh, your Java uh, applications from in like on the server, and then you could restart or patch them with a new version uh, automatically through this one thing. And then, and then on top of that, we started doing like advanced features. Like for example, it would it would uh, kind of inject itself since you are a Java agent, and Java agent has like a more or less full control over the JVM what it's running there, right? So because you can transform the bytecode of all of the classes, and then if you do the native uh, native Java agent through, uh, then you you have the unlimited power in the JVM, mm -hmm. right? So you can do whatever, right? So what it would do, it would inject itself between your application, so it can kind of intercept the traffic, mm -hmm. and then we would do we start doing the like sort of rolling restarts 
uh, where you would have multiple instances running and we would reroute the traffic to another instance mm -hmm. uh, just from the, like the application itself would become kind of sort of a small load balancer. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you would like reroute the traffic and then, and then when that is done, you can safely restart the application after it's not doing anything for the users. So it was a very elaborate piece of software and I think it was ahead of time and then that was that was its its problem because apparently uh, how the future now the past has shown is that we never kind of got to the point where that was a predominant deployment model mm -hmm. and the world shifted into running into containers mm -hmm. uh, and of course the orchestration then shifted out of the containers to a different like layer entirely uh, in, in the stack and that sort of thing that became irrelevant mm -hmm. and not needed. Uh, but it was very interesting and writing a Java agent actually surprised, it's surprisingly easy. Yeah. Like it's, it's surprisingly but, uh, back to that to the observation, what I can, what, what I could see that this such similar technology could come back because, you know, the, the crazy decomposition into many running processes, it makes everything for lots of use cases, unnecessary, complex, and too expensive. And having, let's say, one larger machine with a monolithic application could be, in lots of cases, cheaper, easier to understand, and, 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 and easier to maintain. And what I already recognized, yes. what I already recognized, that if I mention monolith, I'm actually, uh, this week I will give a talk how to create a great monolith, um, no one is opposed anymore. And seven years ago or 10 years ago, I wrote the first blog post, like monoliths are great. There was a huge discussion. But now, after, after seven years or 10 years, uh, did, people say, yeah, you are absolutely right. So a monolith can be actually a good decision. So I would say um, it can, could come back because Java is actually great and it could be a lot cheaper you know, to run a monolith on a larger virtual machine or Docker container than trying you know, to, to, to do the same with lots of Lambda functions or whatever. Yes, absolutely. But still still with the like with the evolution of all kinds of orchestration tools mm -hmm. uh it is it is much much easier to do this orchestration one step ahead like away from the, your actual applications yeah, yeah. whether those are like small applications yeah, or no, no or load balancing like, inside but you, uh, but uh, i mean you're running yeah. you know larger pieces of code and yeah, um, yeah. yeah oh no and yeah this is this is this is how how it, how it happens now as well i think very very few teams actually do those everyone talks about yeah uh, and now less but like a few years back yeah uh, absolutely everyone talked about microservices as this is the 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 next level thing and like absolutely everyone needs to yeah. do this and employ this architecture and but what I think everyone was doing and I hope what everyone was doing they yeah. would actually do the same thing where uh, they would not chop it into the pieces smaller than is reasonable yeah and right? um, uh, because. Mm -hmm. Live Rebel. I almost used Live Rebel, yeah. and uh, J Rebel was used a lot. I would say in yeah. in, in across Europe, J Rebel was crazy popular. Is the zero turnaround company still around? You know that? Well, in in two thousand seventeen ish, uh -huh. at the end of the seventeen, it was acquired by uh, by a company. I forget the name. Uh -huh. uh, it it was it acquired by a company. Mm -hmm. uh, it was the same, I, I, how can I do this? It was such a big deal for me. And then it was such a, like, so it was acquired. And, mm -hmm. and then after that, it was, that company was acquired by Perforce as well. Oh. 
right? So it was two layers of acquisition. Uh, but I, as far as I know, Jarable is still a product and you can, you can still purchase that and use that. And, uh, I think it's a, still a sort of a business. Not sure how successful or how ah, Evgeny Kabanov. I had a lot of discussion yes. with him on lots of conferences. Yeah. Yeah. He's very smart. He's very smart. He's a, he's a brilliant engineer and, uh, yeah, he built a, this very, very, uh, interesting startup. Well, together with the team, of course, but yeah, he was, uh, uh, he was the main founder and the driving force and the CEO, uh, at the later stages. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you can still, yeah, you can still, you can still do the J Rebel thing. And then Live Rebel, of course, uh, was ca canceled. And then there were a few other projects. And at some point of time, my personal journey with them, I kind of moved towards this more marketing related position and joined the beautiful world of developer relations. Which at first we didn't call that. Where at zero uh, turnaround or where? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, at zero turnaround, right? And it was before the acquisition. Uh, it was before the acquisition. But at some point, so we had this uh, blog portal, right, called Rebel Labs, and we were publish uh, technical content there, various blog posts exploring the problems and solutions with the Java ecosystem, and, and all kinds of cool things as well there. Yeah, I remember you had a lot of service, you know, productivity boost, which uh, Java E frameworks are used. So it was always like a yearly report from zero turnaround, which was really interesting. Yeah, yeah, we did those. And they, they were they were very, very interesting. And then we used those two, of course, to kind of assess the ecosystem of people that we could reach. Right. It's very hard to like, it's very hard to sell something to people that you cannot talk to. Right. <laughs> so. Uh, so making, doing a survey is a very efficient way of, uh, finding out information about people that you actually can reach, mm -hmm. uh, which is your client base and people that kind of like follow you and are willing to spend a few minutes to kind of reward you with, with, with their information about, and those are very useful. And I think other players in the ecosystem, in Java ecosystem also kind of looked at them, mm -hmm. uh, the same way currently, I know there are two large surveys. Uh, well, three large surveys that I know and kind of like follow and think about the results. Those are the, the Stack Overflow survey, mm -hmm. which is more generic and less Java oriented. And mm -hmm. Java, I mean, like the whole JVM ecosystem, right? So when we say Java, but we mean Scala and Kotlin and Groovy and everything. So everything that works on the JVM. And there is the JetBrains developer survey, mm -hmm. which is more Java oriented because they have uh, Java related products. Uh, and then there is this uh, SNCC. Mm -hmm. developer survey, which is the SNCC is a security company startup, uh, into which a few folks from a zero turnaround joined after okay. the acquisition, uh, namely there, I think the, the VP of DevRel currently is Simon Maple. Mm -hmm. right, so, ah, okay. Uh, exactly. Simon did the virtual Java user group. Simon was big. He created the J virtual Java user group, VJAC back then. Yeah. 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 And then, world. yeah. So. So, so at zero turnaround, we did those excellent, uh, things with the world impact, like the, the virtual jug and those reports and, and the blog, and then those consumed quite a bit of time, but you also, you, you, like you, what I learned is you very rarely want non-developer people, like people without the development experience, uh, to run those initiatives completely mm -hmm. because somehow like developers are like a very interesting group of people i feel mm -hmm. is we spend our time on the internet mm -hmm. where everyone tries to sell things to you mm -hmm. right so and and the developers are a very lucrative group of people to sell to because first they personally 
usually fairly well compensated. So they have money and they have ability to spend that money. And second, they also work for companies who have a lot of money. And if you provide some value for developers, right? Developers are so expensive that companies can spend a lot of money on anything that improves productivity, mm -hmm. which is which is obvious, and this is correct. So, but that makes developers a very interesting group to target, mm -hmm. uh, like for all sorts of marketing campaigns and everything. So naturally, I feel we develop, and we, I mean developers, we develop this uh, resistance towards being targeted in various marketing campaigns. Yeah. Right. Like it's sort of like in in the past, like you know, you open the page and there will be banners everywhere, yeah. and they will be like flashing at you and like asking you questions and and this and that. Uh, but you kind of like blank all that away, and then you you never see them, right? You never click on them. You just yeah. they they distract you and annoy you, but you kind of don't process them consciously. So the same way, I think like you learn to kind of separate like content and and the marketing campaigns and and the materials and white papers and blog posts. Uh, from in a very few like seconds, and you like immediately see, okay, this was written by a marketing person with the with the idea that you need to go and check out the project, right? Or there is a second group of like, for example, content that you see like it was, oh, this was written by an engineer sharing their experience, and you're like, okay, from this I can learn something valuable, right? And you sort of like w you do this assessment of yeah. which part of the uh, the thing it is very very fast. Mm -hmm. Right, so so I think to to have efficient content campaigns uh, for developers and kind of get their attention and then build this relationship, you want actually people with development experience to to run those. Yeah. Uh, so by the that's way, why that's why the company is Rockwave. Yes, right? Rockwave, of course. Yes, Rockwave, the company. And Absolutely. Rockwave and back then created collections for Java, right? What I remember, C plus plus. Didn't didn't Rockwave back then? Uh, started with collection framework and stuff like that for C++ or whatever. This is what I remember, or, or or component libraries or something like this. I would have to I have to look it Maybe. up. Maybe, yeah, because I know Rockwave for a long time at the beginning of Java. It was like uh, I would have to look it up. It it, it doesn't it doesn't matter right now. But you became you know from hardcore programmer a DevRel, which also programmed, right? Yes. And then what happened? Then uh, you 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 joined Oracle then, or what was the transition from? Yes. So so there was this this acquisition. And after the acquisition, I obviously uh, looked around, like what's available here and there. And then uh, our DevRel team was laid off, mm -hmm. uh, so I had some time. I had some time off uh, with the compensation, of course, right? So, so I, I didn't have to like immediately jump into things. But at the same time, like acquisitions like that are an excellent trigger for uh, for the external people, mm -hmm. right? So if you see a company being acquired, like you. Very often you can think about, oh, will people stay there or are they looking elsewhere? So you kind of like, if you can approach and offer them something and you would like to hire them, it's a great time to actually start the conversation. Mm -hmm. So and we started the conversation with, with Thomas, mm -hmm. Thomas Wertinger. And uh, at the time, uh, there was the clear that GraalVM becomes a thing. And this would be the project that needs to be transferred from being a purely academia thing into the real world. Uh, project that is used by the industry, uh, and Thomas wanted to uh, s start creating this DevRel team to 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 work on that okay. as well, right? So to to help with the community connections and to help with positioning documentation uh, articles and uh, conference talks and everything like that. And by the time by that time, I think I kind of had an eye on Growl for a little bit. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So I had a blog post about how it works and I had this randomly. Right. So at zero to around, the deal was that I could do content about anything that I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I maintain some balance with kind of sort of the, the problem related things. Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, so I had this session about how to make a new JVM language in, in, in under an hour. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is, and, and there I used the, an example of the uh, calculator language just the, well, the calculator arithmetics, mm-hmm. uh, and I think parentheses and, and something like that. Uh, and I built that calculator with the truffle framework and, mm-hmm. and grab the M and, and I run that. And I like, it was full of minor mistakes. And I think I said some things that were not entirely true there because I just didn't know any better, mm-hmm. but to be honest, back then the, the information wasn't as readily accessible as well. But I did, I did some research there, right? And I had that and I did the session a few times. Uh, so I kind of knew the components of GraalVM a little bit. And then maybe, maybe that is what, what kind of how Thomas learned about my existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it was the Rebel Labs blog uh, or just uh, somehow. And so we started talking and, and I joined the team and it was, uh, it was a very interesting experience since then. Surprisingly, even for the DevRel role, I had a, one of the interviews was a coding exercise, okay. which was very interesting. When, when did you join Oracle? I joined uh, February 1st, 2018, so three years ago. What I think, one of your first talks, could you be that you spoke at DevOps, Belgium, for Oracle, about GraalVM? Or was it before? Yes, of course. Because what I oh, remember, well, uh, you were before me, and I and I just said, okay, what is the most interesting talk? And uh, was uh, it was Graal VM related, performance related, and Oracle database performance or something like this. It was uh, it was an interesting mix. Uh, I think this was you, so as I remember. And uh, and uh, could it be that you in two thousand eighteen or nineteen or something like this? Um, eighteen, I think. That you that you were eighteen, at... absolutely. Okay, then I and, and I really enjoyed your talk because it was funny and oh, uh, and 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 interesting. So, and I was a little bit nervous because I was after you in different room, but I stayed until the end and maybe came a little bit late. So I remember <laughs> your talk about Gravium and performance, and and it was an interesting mix because you did was a great technical content and with some you know references to Oracle, which were actually interesting, not like you know selling stuff, but uh, interesting stuff. So, um, and, oh, thank you. Uh, yeah. And um, yeah, you know what? Which talk it was? It very was? Interesting. What was it? The talk you remember that? At Roughly. DevOps Belgium. Yeah, uh, I think it was a mostly like a, a general intro to GraalVM and what it can do. Yeah, maybe uh, mm-hmm. or something like maximizing performance with GraalVM, where we would uh, we would look at how the 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 runtime, the GraalVM runtime, can be used for your Java applications, mm-hmm. right? But but so, sort of performance is. A very overloaded term. And what what um, do you do? Are you still DevRel right now, or? Yes, I'm still a uh, yeah, I'm still in uh, the a DevRel person and the individual contributor. And currently, we're still doing the the blog posts and the articles and some videos and and, and less conferences now with the well, well with the situation, of course, yeah. uh, in the world. Uh, but more. The first year of the COVID, we did more online conferences, mm-hmm. and now we just try to do some podcasts and and, and videos and like mm-hmm. kind of sort of where where we just use the platform that is available, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and you joined two thousand eighteen, so now we have three years. 
So what do you do yeah, there? Yeah. So what you did? So what was like? Uh, is it the same position all the time, or 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 you, it moves a little bit, or shifted, or what? Yeah, it is the same position, right? And but it is very very interesting because uh, it's a very versatile project, and the focus of the project and the how the community uses it and how how we want the ecosystem see it shifts a little bit all the time. Mm -hmm. So 2018, it was in the beginning. It was in the very early stages of becoming the uh the the open like it was open source right but becoming the the project that we think could be used by people right so like sort of getting the initial release and we spent 2018 and we had the release in uh, i think in the beginning of 2018 mm -hmm. somewhere in may or sort of like that uh and and we 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 prepared the docs and we prepared the website and we started doing the the social accounts and then we started doing the exploration of various topics with content of course uh, so the the engineering team uh, drives forward features and compatibility and performance but we had to we had to do the 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 content of uh, talking about how we talk about Gravium and the the first year I think was spent about uh, just talking and elaborating what Gravium can do to various people. Mm -hmm. Right, uh, and it is very interesting because it can do many, many different things. Uh, this is what what so I wanted to tell you. So the, the GraalVM, so I, I follow GraalVM longer than you, I have to say, thankfully, because uh, um, uh, the first time I heard about that was by James Gosling, and the project was called Maxwell. And I remember this exactly because it was like uh, Area 51 project, something like this. And this was, I think, at the Sun Microsystem days. And then um, I asked Thomas Wüttinger about this, and he told me, okay, this was, but it was renamed short after that, because I wrote a blog post about that, and I couldn't find a reference to Maxwell. So there's like, you know, predecessor of GraalVM. And, um, and what's interesting in GraalVM is that it is actually one of the few projects which uh, it is like a multifaceted project. So the, the project, it, it is a great VM, virtual machine, so you can run your usual workloads. You can use, you know, the multilingual possibilities that you can actually, what, what I'm doing a lot, I'm loading JavaScript into, into Java. I can interact with JavaScript. This is uh, because I'm st stealing some libraries which are not available in Java from JavaScript, like mustache or handlebars, so I can render HTML stuff. And, uh, and of course, the, uh, what, what most developers or product managers know in my, my uh, project managers and product PMs from, from various projects, the native capabilities. And, um, what also fascinates me that this project comes from Oracle, and this is almost like you know the spirit from Sun Microsystems back then. Uh, it is like you know a, a, a crazy project which is uh, you know very successful. And what I would like to do is um, re-invite you back in a few weeks and just talk about GraalVM, your time, you know, so we can explain to developers whatever you like. Just you know go the entire path of GraalVM several facets otherwise it was going to be too long i can explain what i am doing and we have like a just technical chat about GraalVM if you like or whatever you prefer yeah that would be absolutely absolutely brilliant because it now we, a, you, do, you don't have to reintroduce yourself so we can just you know focus just on the fun stuff uh, i mean uh, java for, for 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 us and yeah this is what i would really appreciate because uh, I, I can learn a lot from you and uh, we can just do it yeah that'd be that'd be cool uh so now, uh, where people cool. can find you on the internet? Do you have a Twitter or, or you know, your blog link? Yes, absolutely. So I mostly go by uh, at Shalaev, S-H-E-L-A-J-E-V, mm -hmm. which is the, the surname. So you can go with Twitter and, and uh, type that or GitHub. Uh, mm -hmm. 
I, I don't have my blog, personal blog, which is a bit of a shame. I think I should have, uh, but producing content regularly is hard enough for the job, right? And as we said before, uh, when there is a job on the line and like a hobby activity, the hobby activity never, never ever wins the battle for the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, so there is no blog, but yeah, Twitter is probably the best. Uh, and then I, I do sort of casually monitor all the resources around Gralvium. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you can find me, find me there. Uh, okay. but Twitter is probably the best. So you are the, uh, YouTube, the, the actually, to be honest, YouTube, YouTube. Okay. if you're watching this, if you're watching this and if you're interested in short videos about Gralvium, uh, just go find me on YouTube and subscribe. Okay. So everyone uh, has to subscribe. So I will put this, the link to the, to the show notes. And on Twitter, you are like the news aggregator for Gralvium, right? Well, not, not specifically, uh, quite a bit of content. Yes. Uh, but I try to, I try to, to amplify all kinds of interesting things, mm -hmm. right? And I, I do have a lot of people that I follow, but I, uh, have a, this, a very casual unfollow and muting policy. So because just otherwise the signal to noise ratio is yeah. very, very yeah. uh, low. So it kind of like when people start, like uh, no, not people, right? When Twitter accounts start uh, being uh, not what I like them to be, right? I just kind of casually mute them if, if they go into topics that I, I find sure. uh, kind of not worth being there. So I kind of uh, curate my list of uh, people there that I follow. And then I have a various mix of very interesting things and people that I try to amplify. Okay. All kinds of like hardware projects and uh, all kinds of uh, just general software engineering projects that I think are interesting, not specifically related to Java or GraalVM. Okay. But of course, just by uh, nature of the job, there is quite a bit of, uh, of information about GraalVM. Perfect. Thank you. And see you soon. Right. Thank you very much.